It's time to think bigger. Elias Pedersen scores! And think bolder. Matthew Kachuk, what a goal! This is Rintoul and Sermon. Another chance, great save by Markstrom. There is shot me back, great save by Timko. On the Sportsnet Radio Network. What's going on? How's your Thursday? Hope you're off to a great start. We're going to make your day better. That's what we do, and we want you involved. 960-960 or 650-650 throughout the course of the show. I'm Scott Rintoul. Jamie Dodd is with me. It's a good day, Jamie. You know what day it is. It's a very good day. It is. It's a very, very good day. You know, we talked yesterday about the fantastic sports fandom heater that you and I are really both on right now. It wasn't quite the perfect day yesterday, but it was another really good one. It was, and today makes it even better because today it's all back now. All of the football is back now. And you know me, I'm a consumer of every single level, all different shapes, sizes, varieties. And, yes, football comes in all different shapes, sizes, varieties. Just ask Jamar Chase, who's taking a little heat for admitting as much here (laughs) in the last 24 hours or so. But, Jamie, the NFL is back tonight. And now we've got it all back, and it's the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and it's the Dallas Cowboys. And we're going to talk about that throughout the course of today related to some other sports. We've got some good hockey content coming your way with Rick Tockett later on in the show. But, Jamie, we got to start with football of the world variety because yeah. that's how you do a job, Canada. We called for it. We asked for it. They knew the pressure was there, and Canada went out last night and took what was rightfully theirs, three points on home soil. It was really exactly what we all needed to see, right? I mean, we said it on the show yesterday. Okay, no Alfonso Davies. That's tough. Not ideal. You never like to lose your best player. But still, you look at the opposition. It's at home. You got to come out and not just get three points, but really run the show. And that's what they did. How about Davies before the match yesterday? Like, we had to go through a, a whole thing with Alfonso Davies. We thought it was just about him not being able to play. And what's the injury look like? And then... Yesterday, there's an Instagram post that comes out, and the quote says, they won't realize how big a part you play until you're not there to play it anymore. And people thought that was throwing shade at the Canadian national team, so he has to respond with a Twitter post saying, it's just a caption. I don't have a problem with the team. I'm wearing a Canada soccer shirt here. I love this team. I'm going to be watching. I wish I was there to play. I want to be back there next month. So we had to go through all of that before we even got to the game last night. And the funny part is that my understanding is that over in Germany, and I guess all around the world, that Bayern Munich fans were having their own kind of freak out about it. Wait, is this about us? Is he is he mad at Bayern for some reason? So everyone who's invested in Alfonso Davies there had a little moment to say, uh-oh, uh-oh, what's this about? But yeah, as, as the man himself says, I don't think there's anything too much to be read into it. I did think it was funny, you know. My initial reaction when uh, when the Canadian team came kind of storming out of the gates against El Salvador was like, well, clearly they got fired up by Alfonso Davies, you know, <laughs> on social media. They saw what he posted. They didn't like it, so they wanted to prove him wrong. But no, I don't think that's what was going on. Well, that is a leader, Jamie. He fired them up from abroad. That's exactly. 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 And boy, were they fired up. They absolutely were. With everybody in this country who cared, who gave a damn of any type saying, look, It's got to be a win against El Salvador if you actually want us to take you seriously. The Canadian men came out like a house on fire. You want to talk about a leader? Listen to who got them on the board first. Tulso. Good ball. Larea. Stop and go across. It's it! Atiba. It had to be. The legend of Atiba Hodges. 
is up 1-0. What a build-up, what a goal, what a table setter for that match last night in Toronto. It's the 38-year-old Atiba Hutchinson. The as you heard, you know the legend grows. He really has been the workhorse, the stalwart of this program. Really, kind of the last holdover, bridging from the past generation of Canadian men's national teams to this new exciting generation. And so great to see him score a goal. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Scotty, we were having the conversation about kind of underrated Canadian athletes around the world, and I nominated Atiba Hutchinson in that category. So really cool to see him score. And I also just love, you know. I mean, he made that run all the way into the six-yard box. He's a defensive holding midfielder. So you know he was feeling it going into that game last night. He had that mentality of let's go out and get a goal because you don't often see Atiba Hutchinson in advanced positions like that, but I loved it. Richie Larea was the guy who made that goal happen. Sensational stuff from him and getting the feet in there. And you know what happened next, Jamie? What happened next is the difference between what this team is and what we've known Canada soccer to be for most of our lifetimes. Because Canada Canada actually scored again, and they did it in <laughs> short order. It wasn't, hey, we've got a goal. That's what we needed. Let's get this home through 90. No, no. Kept pressing. Scored again. Canada up 2-0. You knew it was going to be their night after that. Yeah, it really did seem like it. And you're right. There's There was no question whatsoever of, okay, let's sit back. You know, let's... Let's just try to see this one out. There's way too much time left on the clock for that, right? They knew they needed to keep uh, their foot on the gas, and that's what they did. And they get the goal. And it it just, you know, there was a moment, I would say, kind of late in the first half where El Salvador kind of got back into the game and they had some kind of half chances and you felt, okay, you know, Canada's got to reassert themselves here, even up 2-0. And then what I really liked was in the second half, they did exactly that. They took the game over again, right? And eventually they get the third to really ice things. But you're right. There was no relenting whatsoever after that first goal. They wanted more. They knew they needed more. And they went out and got it. This isn't exactly a world power that Canada was beating, but that doesn't matter. Just go win the game and do so in dominating, unequivocal fashion, which they did. Tejan Buchanan, I thought embodied what this team has been through in the past week. Tejan Buchanan was a guy who's really burst onto the scene in the last little while. He's got this nice transfer over to Europe coming up, and some people think that in a couple of years he's going to be moving up to a bigger and better league. Tejan Buchanan, at the start of this week, Jamie, he came out so excited, so overamped, trying to do a little bit too much. He's the guy who committed the foul last week against Honduras that gave Honduras the penalty kick. Well, Tejan Buchanan, just like Canada, has settled into this qualifying, at least in the early stage of, of this qualifying group. He was superb last night. He sets up the second goal. He scores the third goal. It was a night yeah. where they needed him to be superb, and he delivered. Well, and you're right, especially with Alfonso Davies out, you know, they need some of those other exciting young talents to step up. And really with Tejan Buchanan, you know, he's not in the same class as Alfonso Davies, but similar skill set, right? Where, you know, at the club level, he tends to play at, at the fullback position, but he can move up in, into an attacking role for Canada, use his speed, use his attacking ability farther up the pitch. We saw that. You know, it was also a really impressive performance because he got absolutely hammered by El mm -hmm. Salvador. I mean, it was the one play mm -hmm. in particular where they're both jumping and going up for a challenge, and the El Salvador player just full-on kicks him in the in the calf, like not even really trying to hide it. Gives him the kick in the calf. You'd think it would be a red card, but it's not. I mean, he was getting that kind of attention. And for a young player, as you said, you know, composure has been at least a little bit of a question uh, for the first two games. 
he had that composure last night, and he showed it, I thought, especially on the third goal, really the clincher late in the match, just a perfect, calm finish. What Canada did last night felt important at the time. You knew it was important at the time, and it felt even more important by the end of the night, Jamie, because the U.S., which was in trouble in their qualifying game last night down in Honduras early, down 1-0 to Honduras. Uh Uh-oh, boy, are the wheels really coming off for this American squad that was thought to be either the best or second-best team in this qualifying group. They roar back with four goals in the second half. They completely dominate Honduras. It's a big win away for the U.S. They were playing that game in Honduras. So by the end of the night, because Panama achieved a really nice result as well, Panama hosting Mexico gets a draw there. By the end of the night, Canada, U.S., Panama all level with five points through their first three games. They trail Mexico by a couple, and it's very early. One win can change this in a hurry but they are part of the top tier all of a sudden after this first part of the window instead of the bottom tier where teams are sitting on two or one point. Yeah, that's it's huge, really. And yes, it's early, but you've still got a lot of hard matches left here, right? You've got to go to Mexico in the next window coming up in October. Eventually, you'll have to go to Panama, where, as you said, I mean, they just drew Mexico. You have to go to Honduras. Yeah, the U.S. got a result there yesterday, but that is never an easy place to play. By the way, did you see how the Honduran fans reacted to their team allowing four goals in the second half to lose to the United States. It was not, it, all of the, the vitriol and the hate that's usually directed at the other team coming down to play in Honduras got turned on their own fans. A bit of a scary situation down there. But you're right. They they did what they needed to do so you don't feel like they, they didn't dig themselves a hole, right? They're like, okay, you're in that upper tier of the eight right now. Still lots of work to do, but you didn't make it you didn't make it difficult on yourselves going forward. Yeah, it was quite the meltdown in the second half for Honduras. Not an 8-1 meltdown yeah. like back in 2012 no. when Canada went down there and we had big expectations in that. I don't know if bags of urine were thrown at their own players, but we can move off of the bags of urine conversation. I'm glad you brought up the fans, Jamie, because that was part of the conversation last night. And I am not opposed. I'm not going to criticize any of the El Salvador fans who showed up to BMO last night. They purchased tickets. They wanted to root on a side that they have passionately cheered for. Perhaps they are immigrants. Perhaps they have El Salvadorian heritage. Whatever the case, you go to a game, you cheer for whoever you want. But it does bring up the conversation about the Canadian fans and those who will cheer for this country and whether enough of them are going to get out to future matches. The keeper last night kept a clean sheet he's one of the leaders on the team Milan Borian he had this to say after the match last night have a listen I want to say right now thank you to all the fans that came like Canadian fans we need more of this we need Canada to wake up you know to support this team because this team can go a long way World Cup is just right there you know we're one foot inside you know we just have to keep going like this and uh, this stadium has to be full of red not blue green or whatever it has to be red, all red, Canadian fans. And I think there's a big difference between calling out Canadian fans and encouraging Canadian fans. I saw that yeah. as encouraging Canadian fans. Hey, thank you to those who came out last night because after those first two goals, the cheers from the Canadian supporters, the voyageurs, and those who maybe went to their first game in a long time for Canada last night, Jamie, they drown out any hopes or cheers or chants from the El Salvador crowd. But the numbers, that's what Borean's yeah. talking about here. Okay, guys, we've delivered here. You asked for it, we've delivered. we got more matches coming up here. We need you to get out and support this team because we've got something special brewing here. And I think it's really also about 
you know, leveling the playing field with some of the other CONCACAF teams, right? Because when Canada does go to Panama, to Costa Rica, to Honduras, to play their away matches there, you know, how do you think those crowds are going to be? They're not, there's not going to be a significant contingent of Canadians in the stands there, right? And I think partly what he's saying is, hey, that's, good. that's an advantage those countries have. We need to have that same advantage when we're playing here in Canada. And you're right, from a noise perspective, I mean, as soon as they went up early, it was no contest. And the celebration between the players and the fans after the game was really cool to see as well. But I get what he's saying. Like, represent, sell it out, make it a sea of red in these buildings for these games because there's an incredible opportunity here. And I would also say, you know, to our listeners here in Western Canada, in BC and Alberta, if we do, if we are fortunate enough to host games, like, let's let's meet the challenge, you know? Okay, Toronto's having trouble getting all Canadian fans in their building. Let's show them that we can do it out here if we get the chance. Yeah, and that's one of the questions we will throw to you, the listener, this morning. 960-960-650-650. If some of these upcoming matches are in Edmonton, if they're in Vancouver, are you going to go? Are you going to make the trek from Calgary up to Edmonton to go? Are you going to fly out to Edmonton from Vancouver? Are you going to make the trip on the western side of this country to go to BC Place, put on some red, put on a Canadian jersey, and cheer on your home side? Are you excited enough about that? Would you do that? You can hit us up throughout the course of the morning, 960, 960, 650, 650. I think it's a fair ask on Borean's part. I don't think he was critical of those who nope. didn't show up last night. He was asking for a return on the futures. Hey, guys, here's what we're giving you. Here's what we're giving you. Can you give us a little something back? Disco Stu texts in immediately. How about a little marketing? A marketing. Surely some of this is on Soccer Canada. Get the message out there. Well, they haven't chosen their sites yet. Disco Stu, and I think you've yeah. seen a pretty big marketing push. And to Disco Stu's point, Canada soccer and the broadcasters in this country, we talked about this last week. Hey, they've responded in kind. A lot of you complained last month, and rightfully so. Hey, why isn't this on a bigger platform? Well, Sportsnet and TSN for one match, they stepped up and said, we think it's important enough to put out there. We're going to pay one soccer, media pro, whatever it takes to get this on for qualifying. So now the challenge gets issued as Soccer Canada, Jamie says, okay, where are we going to play these matches? Are we going to go to the cold in Edmonton and make it tough on teams like Costa Rica and Mexico? Are we going to go to BC Place and give our skilled side a little better opportunity to compete in those games? Wherever we go, are we going to get the crowd support we need? And I think really what they did in this first round of three qualifying games is they've kind of taken away any excuse that fans might have for apathy, right? Because, okay, the draw against Honduras was frustrating. Great result on the road in the United States. If they had dropped points against El Salvador, I think you would have heard a lot of fans kind of saying, here we go again, same old Canadian men's national team. They can't get it done in the big moments. We had all this hype, and they're not living up to it. But with the performance they turned in last night, I don't think you can really say that anymore. Like, you should, if you're a soccer fan, there is every reason to be hyped, to be excited about this team, and to have belief in this team. And I know from my perspective, man, if there are games in Vancouver, I am absolutely going. Who knows when we'll get the opportunity to cheer on a team like this again in this stage of qualifying. I know the future looks very, very bright, but we know things can go poorly. Things don't always, you know, turn out just like we predict them to. So... I am absolutely all about seizing this opportunity. If there are games near me, yeah, I want to go. And if you're on the fence, I think they've shown you enough already. Get behind this team because they're the real deal. Here's the dissenting side of it. This is Canada. We don't give a hoot about soccer. 
Well, traditionally, from a crowd standpoint, I think that's fair. However, I think we have changed as a sporting nation, and part of it is the bandwagon effect with the team going yep. pretty well. People want to be something part, something that's upstart. People want to be a part of something fun. All of a sudden, you see a team play well. People want to go be a part of it. Look at the change in how many people follow basketball. Talk about basketball, the amount of content hoops-wise that we have in this country, given the rise of basketball in Canada, Jamie. And there's a very similar effect happening. The women's team has led the way for a very long time, a very long time on the soccer front. The men's team has a long way to go. We're talking about one that won an Olympic gold medal, and we're talking about one that's hoping to qualify for the World Cup. They're in different stages. But as that process starts to occur, people are going to want to jump on board with it, even if they haven't been a part of it in the past, because... For the most part, people in this country want to support their national programs and their national athletes. And just look at the, you know, to the texture saying, oh, oh, no one in Canada cares or we don't care in Canada about soccer. I mean, look at how much coverage and viewership of European soccer has grown in the last decade, right? There's obviously an appetite in this country for high level soccer. And you're right. I think there is going to be a bandwagon effect, you know. It's it was easy for people who kind of jumped on the Liverpool or Man United bandwagon or, or whatever to, to look at the Canadian national team and say, ah, they're irrelevant. I'm not going to get invested in it. They're relevant now. And I think you will start to see a lot of people who have flocked to soccer over the last, as I said, you know, five, ten years, whatever you want to say. I think they will start to really get behind the Canadian team. And we're getting text in here to the 960-960 Calgary inbox. This is Adam in Calgary says, soccer Canada jerseys are now something that people will wear. Think about it. You never saw someone wear a Canada soccer jersey before. For the first time, I am going to get a Canada jersey. And that's exactly what I'm talking about, right? Okay, this is a legit outfit now. This is a real program that I can cheer for and that I can feel good about cheering for. And I'm going to go out and represent and get behind them. Gavin says, would love to go watch the match, but would Vancouver be given a consideration due to the turf at BC Place? It's always an issue. Never seen Soccer Canada at this level. Well, it wasn't quite this stage of qualifying, but it wasn't that long ago. And maybe I'm dating myself a little here, Jamie. It wasn't that long ago that Canada did play Mexico at BC Place. And the turf at that time was actually inferior to the turf that's there right now. Yeah, plus, I don't know, maybe it's uh, maybe it's a competitive advantage, right? I don't know sure. if, if some of the MLS players on Canada are used to playing on the turf, but people from or players from Central America aren't. Maybe you get a little competitive advantage that way. I hear you. Yeah, the turf is always going to be a question with BC plays, but you're right. They have played matches here before. I think there's every reason to think they would do it again. There's a, there's a big difference between qualifying for a World Cup, per se, and winning a title. And that's where I want to turn this conversation because, as I said off the top, this is a really good day if you're a sports fan. You get the National Football League back. It's a one-game standalone event. We'll dig more into the rest of the NFL tomorrow, Jamie. The season really gets going on Sunday with the full slate of games and just that in front of you, that smorgasbord that you can consume. And whether you're watching it on a bunch of different screens or flipping back and forth, it's going to be a lot of fun come Sunday. But tonight, it's the Tampa Bay Buccaneers opening their Super Bowl title defense against the Dallas Cowboys. We know how many eyeballs the Cowboys draw for any game. This is the standalone game. The ratings tonight, they're going to be massive as Tampa Bay begins its defense of this Super Bowl. And I've seen some people complaining that 
the Dallas Cowboys are the second team in this game, right? Because they had such a poor season last year. You know, people saying they didn't earn it. They don't deserve to be in this spotlight. But we all understand why, right? They're America's team. They are still such a potent brand in the NFL. And it's, look, I mean, yeah, they didn't have the strongest year last year. Dak Prescott was injured, right? So that explains a lot of it. It's not as if there's a shortage of compelling storylines with the Dallas Cowboys. So I have no problem putting him in this spot. I'm excited to see what Dak Prescott looks like. Tampa Bay and Tom Brady, I mean, you know, what are you going to say? Of course, they're going to draw ratings. You're right. It's going to be a massive spectacle tonight. Is it the game I would have chosen if I could have set the schedule? No. No, I would have put Tampa Bay against someone else. I understand the gripe, but the NFL can sell anything. You can literally put any other opponent. You can put the Detroit Lions against Tampa Bay tonight, and people would watch. People would would tune in 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 massive numbers. Yeah, not as big as the Dallas Cowboys, but they would still tune in in massive numbers. Sure, would I like to see Green Bay in a rematch of the NFC Championship game or Patrick Mahomes in a rematch? That'd be great. But this is going to be fun tonight, and there's going to be star power, especially from a fantasy football standpoint, all over the field. But I'll, I'll get to fantasy a little bit later, or we can do that if you want. I want to talk about the thought of running it back, because Tampa Bay is doing something that no team does, Jamie. They're bringing back all 22 starters. Yep. Even the teams that try to stay together and run it back, they don't bring back all 22 starters the way that this Bucks team is doing. No, it's very, 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 very rare, and it's really impressive, and I think it's a reason why a lot of people are picking them to, ha- to repeat or at least to represent the NFC in the Super Bowl. We saw what this roster could do last year, and it's literally all back, right? And so, you know, from that perspective, there's not necessarily a lot of reason to doubt what the Bucks can do. Tom Brady's done it, but it's been a really long time, and it wasn't with what we consider his best teams or more prolific teams. It was back in 03, 04, when Brady went back-to-back. It's tough to do in the NFL, and we want to throw that out there as a poll question today. Not just about the Bucs, although there's two Bucs in this question. Which team, Jamie, which of these three teams has the best chance to run it back and win a championship again this season? Is it the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, those Bucs? Is it the Milwaukee Bucs in the NBA coming off their first title in forever? Or is it the Tampa Bay Lightning? Is it the Bucs? the Bucks or the Bolts? Which team has the best chance of repeating, and in the case of the Bolts, three-peating? Yeah, and that's the reason why I'm not going to go with the Tampa Bay Lightning, or one of the big ones anyways, right? Is Yeah, it's really hard to repeat. It's way harder to three-peat, to do three in a row. It's so, so difficult. Plus, we saw, you know, Tampa Bay lost some key pieces this year, right? Yanni Gord, Barkley Goodrow, Blake Coleman, they're gone. They got, yeah, they they have the high-end talent still there, but they lost some of those really key depth pieces that they brought in that helped them get over the hump and eventually win the Stanley Cup. Look, Tampa's going to be an excellent team. They're going to be fantastic again. Three-peating is just such a tall task. So I look at this. It's never easy to repeat in any sport. I kind of like the Bucks' chances, the Buccaneers' chances, that is, of any of these three teams because, as we say, they're bringing it all back. And they have Tom Brady. And at this point, what do we gain by betting against Tom Brady? It seems like every time we do it, he beats us. So I'm not willing to do it again. Of these three teams, I think Tampa Bay, the Buccaneers, have the best shot at rebeating. There is a good case to be made for all three. We'll let you make them throughout the course of the show. I've thrown this out as a poll question right now on Twitter. At Scott Rintoul is where you can find it. So far, over 56% of you think it's the Tampa Bay Lightning that have the best chance to run it back. Second place, 34.5% with Jamie's selection. 
and only 9% of people are picking the Milwaukee Bucks. We can get into that conversation and much more. We're going to head to what is currently Titletown in the USA. I'm not sure we ever thought we'd be calling it Champa Bay on more than one front, but we are right now. We'll head there next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Jamie, I've been doing this for a long time, and I mean sports media. I've been involved in it in a professional capacity for over 20 years now. Actually, 20 years this month. I joined Sports Page September of 2001. Tom Brady has been playing professional football longer than that, Jamie. <laughs> That's wild, it's unbelievable. man. It's, it's unbelievable, really. You see this for certain positions, and one of them would be kicker. Like, if you're a great Adam Vinatieri yeah. just retired. Like, he just retired. <laughs> the guy who kicked that game-winning field goal in Tom Brady's first Super Bowl and a couple others, he finally hung him up. But it's a kicker. While it's a very precise position and it has certain physical demands, he doesn't have the physical demands of most positions on the no. football field. Tom Brady, assuming he stays healthy and – Knock on wood for that. Tom Brady is going to pass Brett Favre in the next couple of weeks for most regular season games played in the National Football League. He's already tied. He's in the top 10. He's going to move past Favre. The only guy ahead of him after he passes Favre, because Brady's at 301 right now, Favre's at 302. George Blanda is at 340. Now, George Blanda was a kicker as well. And for the last yes. number of years of his career, he was just kicking. He played a little bit of backup quarterback here or there. But Tom Brady, like most of his career of late, is doing things we just never seen before. Yeah, he is, you know, he's blazing a new path, really. I mean, how long, you know, he said he's been playing for more than 20 years at this point. For how many of those years have people been predicting age-related decline from Tom Brady, right? Like, at least the last 10 years and it just hasn't happened. You know, yeah, he's not what he was at his peak, but he's still one of the best quarterbacks in the league. And it feels crazy to look at a quarterback who's, you know, 43, 44 and think, oh, yeah, I'm not going to predict any decline. But he's proven us wrong again and again and again. We all know how father time has done over the course of, yes. of every yep. single sport. So if you keep predicting it year after year, one of the years you're going to be right. Like, oh, this yep. is the year that it happens for Tom Brady. If you just say it every single season, eventually eventually you're going to be right. I'm not sure it's this year, though. I did hear Carson Palmer say earlier today that his biggest question with Tampa Bay, as counterintuitive as, intuitive as it sounds, is Tom Brady because father time comes for everybody. And at some point late in the year, does it come calling for Tom Brady, Jamie, the way that it came calling for Drew Brees? Maybe not from an arm strength standpoint, but perhaps from an injury-related standpoint. I think what I've decided is just I'm fine to be late on it rather than early. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just going to keep believing that Father Time won't catch up to Tom Brady. You're right. Eventually, I'll be wrong. But I've had enough of predicting it will catch up to him and then being proven wrong. So that's fine. I'll, I will believe it when I see it when it comes to Tom Brady getting old. Let's head to Tampa Bay, Titletown right now, Tampa Bay, whatever you want to call it. Jay Retcher, WDA Afternoon Drive in T-Bay, joins us right now. Jay, thank you very much for doing this. How are you today? I'm great, Scott. Jamie, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. No problem whatsoever. How about those champagne problems? I mean, you guys have the problem right now of trying to predict which team is best position to win this season whether we're talking about the Buccaneers or the Lightning or perhaps those first plays best best record in the American League 
Tampa Bay Rays. Who gets your vote if it's between those three? Oh, man, that's a good question. You know, <clears throat> before uh, free agency, I'd probably say uh, the Lightning, but losing some of those guys on the third line, uh, that might come back to bite them a little bit. I still think they'll be in a good chance. They'll be in a good spot to uh, go for three in a row. The Rays have been playing really well. I'm still very curious to see how they're going to do their pitching uh, come postseason time because they got a couple of youngsters. They do the opener thing. They do things their own way. And even us down here in Tampa, we see the Rays every day. And still, <laughs> we at times, we have no idea what the heck they're doing. But it works out, so you give them the benefit of the doubt. I'd say the Buccaneers, man, you – you bring back 22 starters. You bring Gio Bernard, which is uh, a Tom Brady-type back. You've seen how well he's done with guys like Shane Vereen and Deion Lewis and James White over the years. Gio fits right into there. And then Joe tryon Shoyinka, the first-round pick, he's going to be able to learn behind guys like Jason Pierre-Paul and Shaq Barrett. I mean, the Buccaneers are, are ready to go. And it, it actually just started raining here in Tampa. Uh, hopefully <laughs> they're, getting out of it, uh, they're getting that out of the way now before kickoff at 820 tonight. Yeah, hopefully weather does not prohibit the best of the best from doing what they do tonight on that field. When it comes to the Buccaneers, when it comes to Tom Brady, there were a lot of lean years, obviously, between the, the Super Bowls, the two of them that this franchise has won. So has the general Tampa Bay fan come at this from a, a place of, hey, man, let's just enjoy this instead of, Ooh, we better get another one right now, the expectation's super high? Yeah, I think people are just enjoying because, as you alluded to before Brady got here, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were the most losingest franchise in all of the four major sports, and he's turned that baby around. And it's really just changed kind of the mindset of everybody with the Buccaneers and around the organization of just having that positive mindset, working hard, no, don't leave any mental stone unturned. And there's a great relationship, and I don't know if, if people see it on the outside, but we, we have this phrase called Team Tampa Bay down here, and it sounds kind of hokey maybe on, on the surface, but once you realize that Rob Gronkowski is hanging out with Alex Kalorn and, and Steven Stamkos and those guys are wearing Rays shirts in, in the locker room, like the, the Lightning are pushing the Buccaneers like, hey, we got two in a row, fellas. It, it's time for you guys to do it. And, you know, is that going to make or break the Buccaneers season? No, but it's, it's kind of like a nice playful thing where the Lightning will, you know, they, they made the video the other day in Russia, uh, Sergachev, and uh, Kucherov and Vasilevsky of kind of the head nod or the shrug that Brady and Gronk were doing. So it's a great playful banter going back and forth. And the Buccaneers are not resting on their laurels. There's no complacency. They know that winning one is good, but winning two, you know, that puts you in the history books. That's something really special. Jay, obviously, you know, Tom Brady's on-the-field accomplishments, his resume is incredible, the best, really, in NFL history. Now that you've had a chance, though, to kind of watch him up close, see – how he handles the media, how he handles his business off the field for a year and, and going into year two now. What have you grown to appreciate even more about Tom Brady with that opportunity? Just the attention to detail and, and the work ethic. And, guys, he looks <laughs> – you want to talk about in shape. This guy looks like he's in his 20s. It's really crazy to be up close and see how well – no knee sleeve uh, this year, so it's going to be – he's going to have a little bit more mobility. I know that's weird to kind of say about a guy in his 40s. Uh, but just being around players down here in Tampa, the, I noticed this with guys like Sidney Crosby. He showed up for a 7 o'clock puck drop game at like 7 o'clock in the morning, and he's sharpening his own skates, and he's doing all this stuff. And there's an attention to detail that great players have, and, and it really sets you apart from being a good player and a great player and you know an all-star and a Hall of Famer. And I've seen it with guys like Henrik Lundqvist, and he was down here for the all-star game, a guy like Sidney Crosby. You see that with Brady as well. He just the, What he does, there's no wasted movement. There's nothing that he's doing that's not going to benefit him. 
in practice and get preparation for the game. It, it's really a joy to see, and people still kind of watch him. It's almost like a caged animal. People just they kind of sit there and watch, even if he's just getting a drink of water. It's, the guy's a specimen, man. It, it's really fun to watch, and it's really cool that Tampa Bay, the Buccaneers fans at least, uh, after going through all those years of, of trials and tribulation and losing football, to get a guy like Tom Brady here and achieve the ultimate goal in year one, uh, that's definitely not something that the fans take lightly, nor will they ever forget. Well, and seeing someone of Tom Brady's status come in and have all of that attention to detail that you talk about, that must just have an incredible kind of domino effect on the rest of the team, right? As they see, holy cow, that's what this guy is doing. I better up my game when it comes to training and preparation, right? Yeah, 100%. And you look at guys like Mike Evans and Chris Godwin especially. Uh, listen, that's probably one of the better tandems, uh, receiver tandems in the league. But when you see what Brady does, and, and listen, no drop balls. It's so big for them. It, making sure that there's no mental mistakes. The physical mistakes are going to happen, but the mental mistakes, Brady's on these guys all the time, and he's bringing the best out of them. And now you get a guy like Antonio Brown, who I was very vocal on my show saying, listen, for a team that is, you know, they do a lot of stuff for women, and I was very hesitant on the Antonio Brown thing. But listen, he's been a good, a good Samaritan. He's been a good player. He's P's and Q's. He's doing everything right. Tom Brady, he doesn't get nearly enough credit for kind of keeping – A.B. on the straight and narrow, and I think he's kind of the sleeper this year for anybody who plays fantasy football or anything like that. I think Antonio Brown, he might be poised for a huge season because he had pretty much a year and a half, two and a half years off. Now if he's fresh, he's still, remember, a couple years ago he was the top five receiver in the league. So now with a full preseason training camp and a full 16-game schedule, I think Antonio Brown could really bust out starting tonight against the Cowboys. Well, as somebody who grabbed Antonio Brown in a couple of uh, my drafts in the late rounds, I love to hear that, Jay. And I'm hoping I'm hoping you're right about that one. And look, I, I did want to ask you about the coach down in Tampa, too, because, you know, we look at the roster and there's so much talent and so much star power. And I think we tend to focus on that with the Buccaneers, the players on the field. Do we kind of underrate the role that Bruce Arians plays? Does he get enough credit for how he's coached this team? I, I do agree with you there. Very underrated. This is a guy, and I, and I think too, like just being around the Buccaneers team, I think sometimes teams get into difficulties because they're always like, well, well, we'll have a, you know, we'll be good in a couple years. We're going to be good for a long time. But I think when you have a team with the Buccaneers where Bruce Arians, you know, how long, how much longer is he going to coach? We don't know. How much longer is Tom Brady going to play? We don't know. So there is kind of that urgency of let's win as much as we can right now and Bruce Arians has done such a great job with this team he's not afraid to call players out doesn't matter if you're the 53rd man on the roster or one of the better players he'll just come out and say what he's got to say and people respect that because he's honest he's transparent and listen he is a huge reason because of his relationship with guys like Carson Palmer and Peyton Manning why Tom Brady came here why he was comfortable to work with Bruce Arians and Clyde Christensen and Tom Moore and now Byron Leftwich. Uh, there's such a great kind of melding of the minds when it comes to the guys that are putting and formulating this game plan. Bruce Arians is at the top, and he's just an awesome guy, man. He's got the, you know, he's got his special hat there, the Kangol hat, and he just seems like a guy that you would just sit at the end of the bar with and just have a drink and just talk football all night. How he is on TV is exactly how he is in person, and I think the players really like that and appreciate that. We're talking football right now with Jay Retcher, WD. A-E, pardon me, afternoon drive in T-Bay, joins us here on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. The other effect that Tom Brady has had is he's become the envy of every other quarterback in the league, not just for the career, but for what he did last year. It's been really interesting, and I'd love your comment on this, to see the domino effect 
Brady going to Tampa Bay, having as much input as he had with both personnel and what they were doing, has had on the likes of Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, and other top quarterbacks around the league. Yeah, it's a great point. And this is one of those things where I don't know if we'll ever get a concrete answer, but I think it'd be asinine to think that it doesn't have anything to play. Because if you're Aaron Rodgers, you're looking around and you're going, man, Brady's going there. He's kind of he's, he's retiring almost down to Tampa, but playing football and doing what he loves. He's got to look at his situation and go, damn, man. It'd be one thing if Green Bay wasn't good. I don't think Aaron Rodgers would put that much of a stink and just kind of go, hey, man, we're, we're doing what we can. But you look, Devontae Adams, Aaron Jones, you got good players on defense. He looks at this and he goes, man, just a little tweak here, a little tweak there. People forget they were in the NFC Championship game. So, I mean, there's still people out there that think Green Bay will be able to beat Tampa in the playoffs this year. I'm definitely not one of them. Uh, but, yeah, I'm with you. And uh, Russell Wilson, I think that was a, a special – you know, I think his words got a little twisted when he's talking about blocking better because that kind of got swept under the rug. I saw something yesterday actually saying that that was probably the biggest non-story and it was something that really got blown out of proportion. So I think that's a little bit different because I feel like Russell will be a lifer there. He has got such a great relationship with Pete Carroll. But, yeah, I'm with you. Aaron Rodgers, it's such a unique situation. And you look at the quarterbacks in the league, if you're in your 35, 36, 37, people thought, hey, things are winding down. Then you look at Brady, who's in his 40s, why not, if you're a veteran quarterback, think, hey, maybe I can squeeze a couple years more and get me a Super Bowl ring? You know it better than we do. It hasn't always been this way for Tampa Bay. Times are good. All the teams are good. They all have championship aspirations. Whether it's the best of times or worst of times, is that a Bucks town, or is it kind of go by which team is doing best? Well, it's funny you say that because uh, the and, – and you guys will appreciate this, and I, I love your city. Went up there a couple years ago for the end, uh, NHL draft. And as a kid that grew up in New York and live in Tampa, I was like, I love this freaking place. This place is so cool. Uh, it's so awesome to see. And again, where I grew up, and I was a big hockey fan, and I played hockey for 10 years, I was a guy that, like, I looking at Tampa, like, is this ever going to be a hockey town? It is a hockey town now. It's crazy. You still see lightning shirts even in the off season. But listen, we're in Florida. It's football. Football is king. But it's not such a considerable considerable gap where the bucks are way up here and then the lightning are just farther down the lightning are pushing higher and higher and higher every and it's a lot of it has to do with jeffrey vinnick the owner he does everything well he's such a philanthropist he does so much work in the in the city here puts his money back in to the bay area and there's just everything's growing around emily arena so people really have such a good feeling about the tampa bay lightning but the buccaneers they were the first professional team here football is king it brings so many people of different uh, just walks of life here in the Tampa area because we're such a melting pot down here. Listen, Tampa's such a unique city. There's people from all over the country, and they come here. I mean, why wouldn't you? It's nice pretty much all year long. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it, it's really cool to see, and I'm very fortunate to be able to be here and kind of see the growth uh, of this city and the, the sports teams hand-in-hand. I know you've been very close to the hockey team, as you mentioned. The Bolts have won back-to-back cups, and in doing so, while they are still the envy of the league in many respects – that jealousy makes fans dislike them a little bit. You saw the yeah. blowback with the Nikita Kucherov stuff. If I can draw a parallel to Tom Brady in one sense, at one point here in the last few years, Brady went, okay, you don't like me. I'm going to lean into it. I'll be the villain, and it's been fun. Are the Tampa Bay Lightning comfortable with being a villain? That That's a great point, too. And I think Nikita Kucherov likes that. And for people that were saying, oh, that he wasn't hurt, I was one of the few people that were in the building when he was skating uh, at the end of the regular season, and he could not cross over left over right, right over left. 
even going forward to backward, he was getting tired. He just he wasn't Nikita Kucherov. And for people like, oh yeah, he sat out. He could have been fine. The more and more people we you know talk to around the Lightning organization, we we ask Cooch, and he's like, man, I didn't even know if I was going to be ready for the game one of the playoffs. So it was kind of a wait and see game for them. For him, yeah, because we have the shirt that says number one BS on it and, what, $18, $19 million over the cap. So he's leaning into it a little bit, but I think you guys know this. Some of the best people are, are around the sport of hockey, man. Just the nicest dudes, family game. There's not many villains. I say that now, but we did sign Corey Perry down here. So <laughs> that might change a little bit. But, yeah, I mean, Victor Hedman, one of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet. Steven Stamkos as well, Braden Point, Sorelli. Yeah, Andre Vasilevsky, uh, these guys are just some of the salt of the earth kind of dudes. I've been very fortunate to get to know some of these guys. So I don't know if they're going to lean into the villain role, but if there is one guy, it'll be 86, that's for sure. Yeah, we definitely saw that in on display in his uh, post-Stanley Cup winning press conference this year, which was fantastic. I would love <laughs> to see more of that from Kucherov throughout the season. You know, I know you touched on it a little bit off the top of the interview, Jay, but, okay, they lose some really important role players, some depth players in, you know, Yanni Gord, Coleman, Barkley Goodrow. Okay, they make a few additions like Corey Perry. Do you think this team should still be considered the favorite for the, to, uh, to repeat as Stanley Cup champions this year? I think so. I think so, and I don't think it's, it's biased because you have a young goaltender in Andre Vasilevsky that's still, in my opinion, the best goalie in the world. You have a top three, top five defenseman on the planet in Victor Hedman, and those guys are your anchors there. And to me, the left side of the defense, I don't know if we've ever seen a left side of the defense ever. I mean, you got Victor Hedman, Ryan McDonough, who was probably the most consistent player for the Lightning in the postseason, and then Mikhail Sergachev, who on any other team would be quarterbacking power play unit number one, and he'd be the first line, he'd be the first penalty killer out there. They do such a good job of kind of, taking some of the stress off of each other. But then, yeah, you add Braden Point and Stamkos and Sorelli. And I think some of these younger guys, like you're going to see Alex Barry-Boulay this year. You're going to see more from Ross, Ross Colton. I think it's going to take a little bit of an adjustment period, getting Perry and Belmar and some of these other guys. But one thing we've seen with this Lightning team, any, any guy it seems like they call up from Syracuse comes up huge. I mean, nobody thought Sergachev or Gord or Point were going to make the team for opening night for the last couple of years. And then look at how important they were to the Lightning's back-to-back Stanley Cups. So I, I trust this organization, especially with a guy like Julian Brisebois there. Uh, yeah, and I think they should still be the favorites. I know people are going to love the Colorado thing, and but I just I, I don't see it. And there's a reason why those guys aren't really able to take it next step to the next level. Lightning have proved bouncing back from that crazy loss in the first round a couple of years ago that they know what it takes to win. I still think they have a ton of pieces to be able to do it again. Well, and in addition to all that talent you mentioned on the ice, I mean, they have the person that I think a lot of people would say is the best coach in the NHL too, right? I mean, John Cooper is integral to their success down there. Yeah, Cooper, he's such a, you know, coming with that lawyer background. He comes at things from a different angle, and and everything that he says, even keel, don't get too high, don't get too low. And he he preaches that message not just in the postseason, but in the regular season too. They know that it's a marathon, not a sprint. And they really empower these guys that are third and fourth liners where maybe they get, you know, on other teams they might not get so much attention. But when you have a guy like Patrick Maroon, who was such an integral part of the fabric of this Tampa Bay Lightning team on the fourth line, every time he scores, these guys go absolutely nuts because he's such a big part of the team. Everybody feels so important uh, from that Lightning club. It's just a joy to watch. And Cooper's kind of the perfect guy to – 
you know, navigate the ship and, and hopefully for uh, everybody here in the Bay Area winning three in a row. The Tampa Bay Rays are home and cooled as far as locking up a playoff spot go, goes. Boy, they look good despite losing last night in Boston. Is anybody going to show up to see those games in the playoffs? What's going on? Yeah, see, that's the hard part. I mean, we have that conversation every day. It's kind of low-hanging fruit, you know. If there's <laughs> if there's not much to talk about in a day, somebody calls in uh, with the stadium <laughs> talking. My goodness, fellas, it, it gets crazy. I mean, you have so many different people, how many different reasons why people don't show up. But we did see two years ago when the postseason came around, everybody was packed out when the Rays were playing the Astros. So even though in the regular season the attendance has been very, very shoddy, uh, once the postseason rolls around, that building's going to be packed and Tropicana Field's going to be rocking once again. Might be Rays and Jays. You never know. Watch out now. The Jays are hot right now, man. Watch out. Absolutely. Hey, thank you very much for doing this today, Jay. Really appreciate it. Enjoy the kickoff tonight and enjoy those champagne caviar problems, whatever you want to label them out with all those great teams down in Tampa Bay. <laughs> Sounds good, guys. Thanks for having me. Talk soon. Thank you. That is Jay Retcher. Does the afternoon drive down in Tampa Bay. It's crazy how things go in these cycles. And the Rays have been good for a really long time. But we we still kind of look at the Rays as they're really good. But can they actually get the yeah. job done on this on this budget? And they came so close to doing it last year. But, man, they're the best team in the American League again. And narrowly, narrowly lost that game last night. An incredible throw to end it from Hunter Renfro, who gave Boston a big lift offensively last night. They might be the best of the three organizations, which is saying something when you consider what the Tampa Bay Lightning have become in the National Hockey League and certainly where the Bucs have vaulted themselves here in the last couple of years. And it's wild because, you know, despite all the winning they've done, and, yeah, I know they haven't got the World Series, but despite all of the games they've won over the last however many years, we still kind of look at the Rays as underdogs, right? And, you know, it's because of their budget. I think it's partly because of the fact that they don't really have that great fan support. But you're right, they might be the best of those teams, and it's still kind of like, oh, those plucky Tampa Bay Rays, they're at it again. No, they're just a really, really good franchise that wins a ton of games year after year after year. Lots coming in on Tom Brady. Marcus and Gibson's wondering if he's going to pull a Vinny Testaverde and return as a backup in his 50s. I know Testaverde was only in his 40s, says Marcus, but he looked like a 50-year-old. Hey, <laughs> Could if Josh McCown can go out there at just over forty and and actually start a game when he hasn't been playing all season? Yep. I don't know how bad Tom Brady wants it when he gets to fifty, but I didn't think he'd be playing at forty three, forty four. Did you? No, I did not. And it's interesting because you know earlier we were saying, look, if we just predict every year that he's going to you know decline because of age and Father Time's going to catch up to him, eventually we'll be right. You know, somebody in Calgary did text in, hey, he could choose to retire before his skill declines. That's true. Do you see that in Tom Brady, though? Like, I think if he, unless he does decline on the field, I think he's going to have the mentality of, I'm coming back to trying to win another Super Bowl. Dude, all it's going to take is this. You know what, man? Nobody can play in the NFL quarterback at the age of 50, not even as a backup. Like, all it's going to take is somebody to say that, and that guy will get so crazy to prove everybody wrong because that's why he's doing what he's doing right now. He finds some sort of of way to motivate himself every single year. It's crazy that at this point of his career with everything he's done, he talks about the people who doubted him and where he got drafted. Like, it's <laughs> wild, but that's what it takes to be as good as he is for as long as he has been. Yeah, and I mean, it's exactly what we saw from Michael Jordan, 
right? You know, who used his Hall of Fame speech to call out all the people who doubted him along the way. Like, that's kind of a similar vibe you get from Tom Brady. He will just look for any slight whatsoever, any hint that people are doubting him, and he uses it to fuel all that preparation that we just heard Jay talking about, right? The incredible attention to detail, the incredible work he puts in in the offseason. He uses all of that, all of the slights and all of the doubting for fuel to, to just go improve and go somehow stay as a top-tier NFL quarterback at his age. And Jay compared him to a high-end athlete in that interview that's not going to be ready to start the season. We'll get into that next and much more. Your texts are welcome, 960-960-650-650. Should they consider doing something a little bit different with this guy and others like him? We'll tell you who next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. If you've been listening to the show every single day, you probably know which playlist that comes from. That's Classic Rock. And if you love Classic Rock, you'll find the perfect mix in the Classic Rock Essentials playlist on Apple Music. From the 60s and 70s all the way all into the 90s, listen to the Classic Rock Essentials playlist on Apple Music. Scott Rintoul and Jamie Dodd, good interview, good first hour. Keep those texts coming, 960-960-650-650. Did you notice who... Jay Retcher compared Tom Brady to in that interview there, Jamie. Refresh my memory. Sidney Crosby. He talked about the yes. details of Tom Brady and how he loves being at the stadium, at the facility, working on all those little things that you could take for granted. And the example he used there was, look, I've seen Sidney Crosby show up at 7, 8 in the morning to sharpen his own skates, and, and maybe that was a little bit of an exaggeration. Maybe he was talking about things with his stick, but the point he made is very valid. And people have said that about Sidney Crosby for a long time. He puts so much into every aspect. I heard Brian Burke earlier this week doing an interview in Calgary because he had his charitable endeavor going on this week say, we have the best practice habits of any team in the National Hockey League, and that's a direct result of how hard Sidney Crosby practices. And it's no surprise to hear that. And, you know, Jay talked also about the effect that Tom Brady has had on the Buccaneers, right, of raising everyone else's level, not necessarily all the way to where Tom Brady is, but at least making guys kind of think about, okay, how can I at least try to match that? How can I go about my business better, prepare better, train better, all of that? No surprise at all that Sidney Crosby has a very similar effect in Pittsburgh. And they're not the only ones. We heard that about the Sedins for years. Go down the list. Yep. When your greatest players are also your hardest workers, it makes everybody else give everything that they have. And we all know the toll that Sidney Crosby has taken. And Sidney Crosby now, Jamie, we find out yesterday, he's going to miss the start of the season. He had a wrist procedure. He's not going to be ready in time. He's got six weeks at minimum. So he's going to be out to begin the year. Evgeny Malkin is going to be out to begin the year after having a knee procedure earlier on this year as well. So the Penguins are going to start this year without their two headliners. And given where they are and the toll that the wear and tear of the National Hockey League grind has taken on their bodies, I don't think that's a real surprise at this point of their careers. No, it's not. Tough blow for Pittsburgh, though. I mean, you take those two guys out. One, they can survive, right? Because you still have the other one, and they're so incredibly talented. But, I mean, we'll see when both of them are able to get back. It shouldn't be too long, especially for Sidney Crosby. But, yeah, not ideal for the Pittsburgh Penguins. Crosby, if you include his playoff games, he's played over 1,200 games in the National Hockey League. He's played yeah. 174, I believe, playoff games. Malkin's played 170 playoff games. That puts him over 1,100 career games played when you add regular season and postseason together. It's going to bring this topic up again, and I want to ask our guest in the 11 o'clock hour about this. 
load management, game management, minute management. Every time you bring it up in the National Hockey League, Jamie, it feels taboo. Oh, no, no, you can't do that. you got to have your best players out there. There's the entertainment aspect that gets argued. Look, if I buy tickets to go see Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin, I know there's a chance they could be injured, but I don't want to find out that they could play and they're choosing to sit them out. Are we moving closer? It's not going to happen this season, at least not, not in my estimation, but are we moving closer to a day where a coach, an organization says, look, for the betterment of our team, we are going to rest these players. We're going to handpick, I don't know, seven games this year because we can see the schedule, and assuming this player is healthy for all 82, we're going to pick seven games where he doesn't play because it's best for him and our team in the long run. I think it's inevitable. Right, and I don't know when exactly it will be, but if you just look at the trends in other sports, and obviously the NBA comes to mind, but you see it in baseball as well, and with what we know about how much of a grind the NHL season is with the way the travel sets up, especially for teams out west like Calgary and Vancouver, it's so, so hard on the bodies of the players. I think it's inevitable that we're going to see that day come and again I don't know when that is it's not this year it's probably not next year but eventually some team is going to look at this and say you know what we will get so much more out of you know a handful of star players if we just give that give them these three or four days off throughout the season I don't think for a second that's why Tampa Bay did what it did with Nikita Kucherov I'm with Jay Retcher and what he said last segment Kucherov was hurt last year he was legitimately hurt yeah did he come back as soon as he possibly could no, he didn't, and at one point they said, okay, from a financial perspective and what we did at the trade deadline, it makes sense, and we're going to use this loophole to our advantage. But that is the perhaps greatest example of resting a player and seeing the benefit of it. Now, we're not going to see Crosby or Malkin or anybody else sit out for the entirety of the season, although I said at the time, and I'll say it again, if you think you've got a good enough yep. roster that you want to sit somebody out all year. If you think Shea Weber is playing coy in Montreal and he's just going to show up for the playoffs, okay, go ahead, try to qualify. It was such a unique situation with Tampa Bay last year, with travel, with only playing your division, with a whole bunch of different reasons. That's not what we're going to see. But I'm with you. We're getting closer to that, and I'm interested to see the first organization that doesn't do what the Red Wings used to do back in the day where they'd wait till late March and go, okay, now we're home and cooled, and we can give guys the odd game off. I'm, I'm waiting to see the organization that says, yeah, we've got a star player, and we are going to keep him as fresh as possible because we know that we will get more out of 75 healthy, rested, productive games than we will out of 82 in that badge of honor that has always been there in the National Hockey League. It is going to be really, really difficult, though, in the NHL to manage. And I think one of the reasons that it's been slower to come to the NHL is you look at the NBA, there are a lot of teams that are basically locks for the playoffs and that kind of know their locks for the playoffs relatively early in the season, right? You know, December, January, certainly February. It's like, okay, we can look at this. We are going to be fine. We're going to make the playoffs. That's much less common in the NHL, right? And even we see it with goalies in the league, right? Where coaches say, okay, I want to give, I want to do a 60, 40 split between goalies. But then all of a sudden it's February and you know, you're fighting for your life in the standings to make the playoffs. And okay. The schedule might dictate that we give the backup a game here, but man, we could really use these two points. So we're going to push it a little bit. We're going to get the starter in there again. There's always that temptation because the fight for the playoffs is so close. It is so tight in the NHL. I still think we'll see it. 
But you have to have a ton of backing from your general manager, maybe from ownership even, to to roll the dice like that, right? Because every two points in the course of the NHL season, for most teams, feels enormous. Some tells me they won't do that in Calgary this year. Some tells me that's not no. the Daryl no. Sutter way. I don't <laughs> think he's going to be going about it that way. Another signing yesterday in Calgary. In fact, they got two deals done yesterday. Former Canuck former Coyote, and there's a bunch of them, and we'll ask Rick talking about them next hour. Former Coyote, Brad Richardson, signs with the Calgary Flames. It's a one-year deal. It's eight hundred grand. We all know it's a bottom of the roster, fourth-line center type of deal for Brad Richardson. Connor Mackey gets a two-year extension as well with the Calgary Flames, getting their last RFA under contract. It's going to come back to this, though. Do they have enough scoring, Jamie? Do they have enough speed? Do they have enough scoring in Calgary for this to be a successful year? Yeah, that's the question because it does look like they've brought in guys that are going to fit well with what Daryl Sutter wants to do. Obviously, Brad Richardson has a history with Daryl Sutter. They won a cup together down in L.A. when Brad Richardson was there. So there's a familiarity, but you could also point to a guy like Blake Coleman who can fit that style, right? Tyler Pitlick, who, again, was goes from Arizona to Calgary. You know, Nikita Zadorov on the blue line is a Daryl Sutter-type player. So they have kind of that element covered, but you're right – do they have enough firepower up front? And again, you know, it, it's it's not fair to throw this in Bradtree Living's face because, you know, everyone has to make depth signings. That's just a part of being an NHL team. You need those depth players. But it does feel like every move they make, it's kind of, okay, you said things were going to change. When's that going to happen? Because you look at the roster and you still say, man, this team is crying out for a legit number one center to juice that offense. Well, and Sutter said that a few months ago, didn't he? Sutter said, yep. as you look around the Canadian division, there's four teams that have a legit high-end number one center. We're not one of them, and they currently aren't. And that doesn't mean that somebody can't fill that role, but there's a difference between playing number one center and being a number one center. Is there something still coming for this hockey team? Is there a trade to be made? I lean on the side of yes. If not, Jamie, what the bet here is, as they've added, they've added players overall, that are going to make the Calgary Flames tougher to play against. We can all agree on that, no matter yeah. what you think their po point total is at the end of the year. But if you don't make any moves off this roster and this is the team you're going to run with, you are betting that you can be New York Islanders West. That's what you're betting. You're betting you can be so elite defensively that you don't have to score so much because that's where Calgary exists as far as goals per game in the National Hockey League right now. Outside of the top 16, right around 20, 21, I think they were 20th last year. If you're not going to score enough, you better be elite defensively. And there's not really anybody that you look at in the roster and think, oh, an offensive breakout is coming, right? You can hope for, you know, better years from Matthew Kachuk, you know, another strong year from Johnny Gaudreau, better year from Sean Monaghan, all of that. But there's not the player that you look at and say, you know what, I think that guy's going to take a huge jump in goal scoring this year. So, yeah, it's going to be right now as the roster is constructed, it's going to be low event hockey in Calgary. I think it's kind of the opposite situation from what's going on in Vancouver, right, where you feel really good about your the forward group, but there's questions about how that team is going to defend. You know, in Vancouver, I think we could see a lot of 4-3, 5-4 games. In Calgary, I think you're going to see a lot of 2-1, 3-2, two, two, that kind of thing, right? It's just going to be lower event, less scoring in both directions unless they do go out and make that big splash that everyone's waiting for. Text comes in from Lack. I predict Monaghan and change for Eichel sometime this season. Well, here's the problem with Jack Eichel. If that sometime doesn't come in a hurry, when's he healthy enough to play? That's part of the 
yep. confusing and confounding nature about Jack Eichel not being dealt to this point in time, or at least not coming to an agreement on what type of procedure. At some point, it's okay, we dealt for the player for the future, but is he even going to be able to contribute this year? And Calgary, based on the coach they hired, given the pressure there is in the market regarding the general manager, Calgary's in a we-better-do-something-now mode. Yeah, you're right. It is such a confusing situation with Jack Eichel because it does seem like his value is kind of decreasing every day. And I, and I get the, okay, you've got to be patient. Don't just want to rush and take whatever deal teams offer us. I understand that perspective from Kevin Adams and Buffalo. But at the same time, you're right. If you're the Calgary Flames, you want him for this year. You want him for an extremely big chunk of this year. And if that's not guaranteed to be the case, how much are you really willing to give up to go get Jack Eichel. You know, we asked, are, is there going to be enough scoring in Calgary for the Flames this year? Text coming in. Uh, Joel in Calgary says, heck no, not enough scoring. Another unsigned text says, well, the rest of the league gets younger, faster, and more skilled. Calgary goes out and gets older and slower. Lots of confidence right now. Lots of confidence. But put me firmly <laughs> in the camp. Put me firmly in the camp still, Jamie, if something's yet to come. Yep. We're going to see something yep. with that roster, something relatively significant. I think it happens before the season, but maybe it takes a little bit into the season for that deal to materialize. Let's get to what they're saying. Jamie, as you know, as I know, and as most of our listeners know, Brad Richardson, pretty familiar with his new head coach. In fact, heard him remark yesterday, wow, can't really tell you how long this has been in the works, but let's just say it was an option for me. Brad Richardson played for Daryl Sutter, won a cup with Daryl Sutter in L.A., and here's what he had to had to say about his relationship with his new old coach uh i wouldn't say constant contact but it's someone definitely when you see around the rank you always stop and say hi and, and catch up for a quick second and um someone that i uh, have a lot of a lot of respect for and um you know if we could uh kind of recreate 2012 i wouldn't wouldn't be wouldn't, wouldn't mind that so um yeah he's uh, he's a good coach and i know he's going to demand a lot of us this year but I, I know i know all the players are excited to meet that challenge Daryl kind of leaves it out there for you there's no uh you know, no surprises. He's pretty straightforward, and I think that's uh, at least for certainly for me the kind of coach I like. And um, it's nice when you just know where you stand, and, and you just got to go out and work and, and bring it every day. Jamie, was your first thought when you saw Brad Richardson signing in Calgary yesterday? Oh, he's getting back together with his old head coach, or was it? Did an ex Canuck really sign? Another ex Canuck really <laughs> sign with the Calgary Flames? Is this happening again? No, I went. I went the Daryl Sutter connection route because it's been a little while since Brad Richardson played for the Vancouver Canucks. He didn't make the direct transition like Jacob Markstrom and Chris Tanev and et cetera, et cetera. Josh Levo, who's not there anymore, like they all did, right? So no, my mind immediately jumped to, oh, another Daryl Sutter guy going back, reuniting with his head coach. Hasn't been that long since Brad Richardson scored four goals against the Canucks. Nope. I can tell you that. <laughs> it has not. <laughs> I remember that as part of his 19-goal campaign down in the desert. We move on. We're not going to ask you today what would classify as a successful season for the Calgary Flames. It's playoffs or bust and then some. In Ottawa, that is a question. And we talked about it extensively yesterday with Ian Mendez. But what says the general manager? Pierre Dorian, fresh off his extension. He was on the Fan 590. And here's what he said to that question. Well, I think when you talk to other general managers and other coaches in our division last year, they'll tell you that we were one of the toughest teams to play against. I think our goal this year is to be one of the toughest teams to play against and continue that. And DJ's done a great job, but at the same time, get the two points. 
We just can't be satisfied with bringing a good effort every night. Every every night, we, now we got to start winning games, and that's the way I look at it. We're still a young team. We're still progressing. But my statement about saying the rebuild is over—it's no more excuses about the rebuilds, and, and that goes to our players, our coaching staff, and myself. You know, let's just take the next step as a team, wherever that might be, wherever that takes us, and let's start—you know—games that we should have won last year. Whatever the reason, we have to win them this year. And that, that, I feel, would be a successful season. Does that mean 82 points? Does that mean basically NHL 500, Jamie, to you? Yeah, if not there, I think it certainly means, you know, not in the bottom, certainly not in the bottom five of the standings, not in the bottom eight, right? Like, get up to that at least minimum ninth, tenth from the bottom, that kind of place. And, you know, we had the discussion with Ian Mendez yesterday, and he said, look, it's not like he's saying he's going out there and promising the playoffs. And, you know, he's careful not to do that in that clip as well. But he's also explicitly raising the bar, right, and saying, yeah, we, we can't be satisfied with going out there and giving a, give, giving a good effort anymore. So that does have to translate in some tangible way in the standings. And, you know, he even says, well, you know, whatever that may be, he's leaving it kind of vague, which makes sense. But yeah, it's got to be something real. It can't just be, oh, we had, you know, six more points than we were on pace for last year. It's got to be a real legitimate step forward, it sounds like, in Ottawa. Okay, I will give you a phrase that I imagine you are familiar with. Meaningful games in March. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm serious. Yeah. That's what it has no, you're to probably be, doesn't right. it? Yep. That's what it has to be for the Ottawa Senators. Not, okay, we got to this point total, but we did it well after we were out of the race. We knew we were sellers at the deadline, and then, boy, they were a plucky bunch late in the season and picked up some points we didn't think they were going to get. No, meaningful games in March. That's what it accounts to if you're not going to be a playoff team. Yep, you're right, and and that's really what Pierre Dorian is spelling out there is that results matter this year for the first time in a while for Ottawa, right? Effort has mattered. For the last couple seasons, they've had that effort, but that's not enough. Results matter, and I think you're right. It probably does translate to those games at least, and, you know, we've been through this here in Vancouver, Scotty, right, where you can kind of squ- – they're meaningful games in March if you kind of squint, right? You know, you're eight games out, but if you if you beat this team, then they're the team you're chasing. you only be six games out, and you can kind of convince yourself that it's meaningful. Just get to that bar at least, right? You don't have to be hanging on to the eighth spot in March, but, but are you at least hanging around in the playoff race? Any fan knows the difference. Any fan knows the difference beyond, oh, it's mathematically possible, and no, these games matter. Like, every fan knows the difference between those two things, and if you're Ottawa, you better be in the latter category at some point this season, or it shouldn't be viewed as success, at least in my opinion. To the National Football League we go. A lot of talk about Tom Brady, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the defending Super Bowl champs. Their competition tonight, pretty juicy storyline with Dak Prescott getting back behind center, leading quote-unquote America's team once again. Carson Palmer, former NFL quarterback, a guy who had his fair share of injuries and had to bounce back. He was on the Fan 590 earlier today. He has some concerns about Dak this season. Have a listen. It's You really forget about it in year three post-knee surgery um, where you're just, you feel like you're yourself again. But even in year two, so these guys are going into year one of post-op. Um Year two, you start to feel like you're moving much, much better and like your your prior self to the injury. And then year three, you just totally forget about it. But year one, which is where Joe and Dak are, it's just a weird year. There's some confidence issues. There's some, you know, there's some technique issues. You don't quite step into every throw and transfer your weight. 
You're worried as you're seeing guys out of the side of your eye come flying down low. You're worried about your leg getting taken out. But the thing that worries me with Dak is his shoulder. I think there's been some issues recovering from that ankle injury and some overcompensations, it sounds like. And he's got some shoulder pain and some shoulder, um, it sounds like tendonitis in the shoulder, which is which is not good, um, obviously. And so, you know, I, I just worry about Dak's um, overcompensating, trying to get back so fast. I just signed a huge deal. I got to be on the field. I got to play. You start... Um, you start overcompensating and creating other areas of pain or fatigue or injury. And I think that's where Dak's at with the shoulder. So, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's a weird year to, to be rehabbing one injury uh, like his ankle and that surgery and the recovery from that and start a whole new injury in your throwing shoulder. That's just not a good recipe. Um, I, I'm, I think we should all be keeping an eye on Dallas because I'd be shocked if Dak ended up playing 16 games this year. And he probably means 17. Easy to continue to make yeah. that mistake. But it's a fair point. And that's a guy who's lived it, Jamie. And yeah. I think the point there is, look, you can tell yourself you're 100%. The test can tell you you're 100%. But once you go out there, you find out that you feel a little bit differently than you did before. And it takes a while to get over that. Well, and there's the mental aspect too, right? Even if your body feels 100%, as Palmer said there, you know, somebody comes in low at you, that's going to have a different effect on you than it did before the injury. That's something you have to overcome as well. I'm fascinated to see what Dak looks like tonight because, you know, we know fully healthy at his best, he can be one of the top quarterbacks in the league. He's he's fantastic at running that offense, and it helps that he has all those weapons around him, but he's a really strong quarterback. I just I have my fingers crossed that he's able to get back to that level for his sake just because I enjoy watching him. But, man, it's going to be a challenge. You heard all of the reasons that Palmer laid out there. It's it's a really, really tough position for, for Dak to be in. Even the best of the best, Tom Brady. We all know he's only missed one season due to injury in his career and how healthy he's been. He came back that next year, and he was good. He wasn't great. Yep. He wasn't great that next year. Carson Wentz most recently. Ah, you know what? He would have been the MVP, but he got hurt. We know what's happened to Carson Wentz. Ben Roethlisberger last year, obviously at a different point age-wise in his career, but did he ever look like he was fully ready to go coming off that injury last season? No, not absolutely not. He had a really tough time. It's an interesting point made by Carson Palmer. He was talking about Joe Burrow as the other guy in that conversation as well. More NFL talk on the way. But we're going to talk to somebody who was at BMO last night and can give us a really educated commentary on where we're at as a sporting nation. He's the great Stephen Brunt, and he joins us next on Rent to Sermon with Jamie Dodd. That was fun last night, man. That was fun for the first time in a long time. It's always fun to win, Jamie, but I'm talking about style points as well. We don't talk about that. We don't associate yeah. that with Canadian men's soccer. Get that goal differential up. Let's go. It was good to see yeah, actually, after the States poured in four in the second half yeah. against Honduras, you almost felt like, well, Canada maybe should have found the back of the net a couple more times last night. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. The goal differential is just fine. And Canada has five points through its first three matches. It only gets more difficult from here. It really does. It's why last night, though by no standard of math, was it a must win for Canada. We all know why people were calling it a must win. Yeah, it felt like that. Obviously, mathematically, not even close, given how many games are left. But, you know, as you laid out earlier in the show, Scotty, there's kind of a clear two tiers in the group of eight right now, right, where the teams have got off to a decent start, and that's 
Mexico, the United States after that win, Canada and Panama, and then it's the teams farther down the standings. And look, you'd much rather be in that top group where you're not looking and saying, oh man, we got to make up a lot of ground all of a sudden. And Canada started the game and dominated the game, and there was no question about who was going to ultimately win the game. It was just a question of by how much are they going to keep a clean sheet. U.S. didn't have that last night. I'm not sure how many of our listeners are paying attention to the U.S., but as Canada starts to do a couple of things within this group, you got to pay attention to what's happening on the old out-of-town scoreboard, if you will. And Boy, did they pull one out of the fire down in Honduras. I can only imagine the reaction from soccer fans in the States today had they not been able to come back and win that match. Well, man, I was uh, I was perusing social media when they were down 1-0 at halftime, and the temperature was hot for American soccer fans. Like, they were expecting the resignation of the coach after the game if they dropped all three points down there in Honduras. That's the level of frustration they were at. Obviously, it looks completely different. Now that they poured in four goals in the second half. But no, it was a, they were on the verge of a full on meltdown, uh, were U.S. soccer fans last night. On this side of the border, it's been a lot of fun for quite a while. You've mentioned this a lot of times, Jamie. You go back to the Olympics and you start seeing, I mean, honestly, if you are just a nationalist, and I know it doesn't work this way quite in hockey, but this, this country to a certain extent got swept up in the Montreal Canadiens run. Like it's been a nice few months of Canadian sports stories here. I don't know if I can really remember a better stretch of it, right? You just look at all of the good things happening for different Canadian athletes in different sports. And even as you said, right, there are those of us, I'm not really among them, but I know some Canadians get invested in a, a team like Montreal going to the Stanley Cup Finals. I know there's a lot of people who are on, you know, the Blue Jays bandwagon as well, if you want to roll that into what they're doing right now. But just even just looking at people representing our national teams, it's been an incredible run this summer. The Olympic gold medal for Canada women's soccer, the world championship for women's hockey. So many stories. Let's get into it with Stephen Brunt, author, essayist, co-host of Writer's Block. He does every single thing in the world when it comes to media, and he joins us here today on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. How are you today, Stephen? Hey, Scott. Good talking to you, man. You as well. It's been too long. As someone who's watched this country's men's side toil away for decades on the pitch, what was it like to be a part of that dominating win last night at BMO? Well, I was there uh, as a civilian, as a spectator, and it was great. It was it was tremendous. Um, but you know, it's been this has been coming for a while. I was at the game. I was at the match it was almost exactly two years ago when this World Cup qualifying started before it was suspended because of COVID. When Canada beat the Americans on that same field, and you know that that felt kind of like the beginning of something, and. Uh, this is a continuation of it. I think we are we are about to enter a a golden age for the uh, for the Canadian men's national team. And I, I, I I'm like a lot of people who followed them through the years. It's been a long time coming, and uh, it, it feels really good. And let's hope the support comes with it. And that's not me disparaging in any way the voyageurs and those who cheered on Canada at BMO last night, but. The goalkeeper, who happens to be a leader on this team, made the point after the game, Stephen, hey, moving forward, we need it to be all red in our stadiums. We need to make sure that Canadians get out to watch these matches. Are you on on the side of, look, if you build it, and it looks like they have, the fans will come. They will turn out in droves for this team. Well, you know, yeah, here's, here's what I would say. Like, it was sold out last night, right? Limited capacity. So 30,000-seat stadium, they were limited to 15,000. There were 15,000 people there. So... I, if it had been 30,000 capacity, would 30,000 have turned up? I don't know, but I think it would have been a good crowd. And 
yeah, there were a lot of Salvadorans there, but they were Salvadoran Canadians. And, you know, it's, there was a lot of blue in the stands. And, uh, you know, that's in a, in a great big diverse city like the one you live in or the one, the one here that you're, you're going to get that. People are going to come out. And I'll tell you what, but here's one of, the, one of the cool things last night, and it sounds kind of Pollyanna-ish, but I will, it's true, you know, is that so the Salvadorans sang their anthem, a full-throated rendition of their anthem, and then when O Canada played, the Sal- Salvadoran Canadians sang O Canada. So, it, you know, yeah, there's, it, it's, that's going to be when Panama plays in Toronto, uh, when wherever the Jamaica match is held, it's that's just it's just the reality of being in the kind of uh, the you know, the multicultural country we live in. Um, but yeah, there was look. It it felt to me it felt like a Canadian you know pro Canada crowd, and certainly the celebration after the match with the, with the players was pretty cool. Well, and Stephen, I think especially now after that result last night and the emphatic way they got the result, you know, it's going to be much harder, you know, let's knock on wood until the next result that goes against them, but it's going to be much harder to, I think, be apathetic about this team because we all know the history with them trying to qualify for the World Cup and the road bumps they've hit along the way, but I think after that result now, if you're a fan, if you're a supporter who is maybe a little bit skeptical, you have every reason now to believe that this team can get the job done. Yeah, I, I th- no, I think so. I think this is kind of the why not us moment. Finally, when you look around and, and look, there's some there there are some things that are going to be very tricky in this. You know, the octagon as, as it's now called. You know, in this qualifying, they're going to have to go on the road to some places that are going to be very very hard to play. Um, they're going to you know they're going to have to go to Honduras at some point where they lost eight one the last time they were there. You know, it seems like a million years ago, but it's only ten years ago. Um, they're going to have to go to El Salvador. They're going to have to play in the Azteca in the next round. In Mexico City, they're scheduled to play in Kingston, Jamaica, the next round in October at 5 p.m. You know, which sounds like a match scheduled for to be played at the at, at the hottest time of the day. So there's there's some there's still some potential pitfalls here, and that's you know that's part of the that's part of the reality of playing in Concacaf. But if you you know watched that match last night minus Alfonso Davies and looked at kind of the depth and the skill level and the they played you know, great defensive shape. They really didn't give up a serious scoring chance the whole game. They could have easily scored five. Um, and it's you know it's, it's you know you got thirty eight year old Atiba Hutchison out there, but you got a bunch of kids in their you know early twenties. This yeah, this is for real. You know this this you can people ought to believe in this. It, you know they look they it's not a guarantee they're going to get to twenty twenty two World Cup, but the fact you can say this right now, I, don't, I think if you'd ask. Most people three years ago, do they have any chance of making the World Cup in 2022? The answer would have been no. And it's a great point about missing Alfonso Davies because, I mean, in the first two games, he looked like the best player on the pitch. You know, we talked to Terry Dunfield on the show earlier in the week, and he said, you know, he might be the best player in CONCACAF right now. And it's pretty remarkable when you think about how the Canadian team has looked in years past that you can remove a player like that and you still have the talent to you know, really take over a game. And yeah, I know it's at home and it's El Salvador, but they really, really didn't miss a beat without Alfonso Davies. I thought that was the most impressive thing about the win last night. Well, and you know, El Salvador, they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're not a great side, but they, they two scoreless draws in their first two matches, right? They, they'd had two clean sheets. So they had at least been able to defend in their first two matches and Canada tore them to pieces, you know, with, without Alfonso Davies, who is, you know, one of the best dozen players in the world right now. Um, and probably, I think he almost certainly is the best player in Concacaf right now. Uh, so yeah, the, 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 when you see the 
Tejon Tejon Buchanan or uh, uh, Jonathan David last night. Um, just yeah, there's a lot of really really good young players uh, and exciting players and creative players. It uh, you know this is not you know park the bus you know and and hope to you know hope to hope to keep a clean sheet and hope to get a draw Canada. This is we're going to attack and we're going to take it to you and, and we can play the ball and the we can play the game any way it needs to be played. You know, all the flair in that game last night was all on the Canadian side. Every every bit of it. And a bunch of this is soccer catching up to other sports as far as our athletes are concerned and our teams are concerned. Stephen Brunt with us this morning on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. We know what our expectation is in basketball and how many stars we see in the NBA. Tennis, we're going to have Leila Fernandez play later today. Felix Josias, Eliasim tomorrow. Chapo was in Wimbledon semifinal. There's golf. I can go through the list here, Stephen. I think it's a great juxtaposition to Larry Walker going into the Hall of Fame yesterday because for the longest time, he was the Canadian that we pointed to in Major mm-hmm. League Baseball. We've got a bunch in a bunch of different sports. As a country, how have we gone from having a few individual flag bears in the world's biggest sports to having prominent players and dare I say stars in many of these sports? It's a, it's a, you know, it's a great question. And the answer is probably different for each of those sports, right? Like I, we've been talking to tennis people all week and you guys probably have too, saying, you know, where did this come from? How, how did this happen? And it, you know, there's, there are people in the administration of tennis, there's coaching, there's some, there's some structural stuff that happened. There's also, you know, an echo from, a player like Milos Raonic, who you you, know, you forget has been around longer than you think, and when the, the when you, you're seeing uh, Felix Oje Aliassim or Denis Denis Shapovalov, they're kids, you know, when when uh, he started to make his mark. Or um, it, it, I think you know with the, with basketball, there's the, you know there's a bit of a Vince Carter echo in Canada, I think, still, and there there's some things that have to do with the Raptors and uh, with soccer. You know, it has been a mass participation sport for kids in Canada. It, you know, for what fifty years, forty years at least. Um, it you know it overtook baseball as the summer participation sport in Canada, and it still is by by far. But that didn't translate. It didn't translate. And I, you know, I, I, I wish there was kind of a an answer, like a one. Well, this is why. Um, but we have. I, I think I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to credit the people running the sport because they've taken a lot of heat over the years, I think rightly. Um, but I think the development system, I think MLS in Canada, I think now the Canadian Premier League is going to be a significant part of that development system. Um, but you know, the big one right now is going to be that you've got this generation of players, but there's going to be a whole lot of kids who are going to watch Alfonso Davies and company. Like, like imagine Canada in a World Cup you know, in, in the 21st century. Not in 1986 when soccer, back when soccer was kind of still kind of a, a niche sport, and uh, you know most of the people who followed it are people who you know follow the, the teams back home in the old country. But now where the kind of soccer literacy has exploded, and people follow the game all over the world via via the screens and understand the sport, and to have a Canadian team at the biggest sporting event on earth, if that plays out, like you, you know you think it's big now, just wait. I agree with you, and we can all focus on if you can see it, you can be it. That's a part of it. It We're long past the prove-it stage. Like, we're long past the, hey, can Canadians be as good as any? Of course we can. We have the athletes. If they're given the right environments, the right resources, and maybe this speaks to the culture that needs to be created within the sports, and, and that's kind of where John Herdman comes into this equation, that he's created 
an environment, and he's not alone in Soccer Canada, where players actually want to play for this country, and they choose to play for this country over others, and we're seeing that in other sports as well, that they'll come play for our national teams and that they're proud to be Canadian and not choosing another option. You know, like I, well, like I know I'm a big John Herdman fan, so uh, and I covered him a lot with the women's team before before he took over the men's team. So I, I'm I'm you're, you're preaching to the converted on John, but I also think that the t- the timing of him taking over this team is perfect. Um, you know, you could have brought in a hired gun international guy to 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 try and get the team to the World Cup, and many countries do that, right? They bring in a guy for one cycle and trying to get through qualifying, and those guys would have had. You know, a different set of experience than John has. You know, maybe more of an experience, more experience in the men's game. Certainly, more experience in the men's international game. Maybe more experience in the men's club game. Yeah, and you know, may have you know tactically may have been uh, more experienced than him in terms of men's football. But you know, John is a you know is a manager of human beings, uh, a coach of human beings. He is he is great in that role, and I think. With this young group, this really, you know, with the exception of a couple guys, you know, Atiba Hutchison, and you know, really, but really a really young group. He, his voice was the right voice at this moment. Is the right voice, and you're right about those guys. You know, they, there there are three or four players on this side right now um, who could have chosen to play elsewhere, and they chose to play for Canada. Uh, look, I I never. Back in the day when you know Owen Hargreaves didn't want to play for Canada and played for England, I thought it was the right decision for him. You know, he got to the World Cup. He played in the Euros. He had a really great club career in Europe. I get it. He was never going to go to the World Cup for Canada in those days. Um, I, I understand, but you know the fact that the program now is sound enough that you can make the argument to these players that look around. You're you know look who you're going to be playing with. You're going to play in a World Cup. You can play. You can represent Canada in a World Cup. I. Yeah, John. John is the perfect guy to deliver that message, and I think the perfect guy to create the culture uh, that is, you know, is so evident on this team already. And Stephen, you know, you talk about the importance of someone like John Herdman to what the soccer team is doing now. And you know, as we're trying to kind of figure out, okay, what's changed for Canada? Why are we all of a sudden producing so many of these world class athletes? You know, you can look at the funding and the development system and all the infrastructure, but. I think a part of it is just the the kind of serendipity of having special individual people come up at the same time, right? And, you know, having a coach like John Herdman at the same time that you have Alfonso Davies. And I think part of it is just, you know, I don't want to say a coincidence, but kind of seizing that moment in time when all of the factors line up together. Yeah, I think there is coincidence here. Yeah, you're going to have some exceptional athletes who just sort of pop up. It, it, it does happen every once in a while, and there's no great explanation. Um you know, there's no, you know, you can go how far back do you want to go? You know, like, how did the Steve Nash happen? Um, you know, how did the Larry Walker happen? Uh, as you, you know, as we say, Larry Walker was all alone. Didn't hardly, hardly play baseball as a, you know, didn't have that opportunity to play a whole lot of hype as he wanted to be a goalie. Suddenly he turns into a, a guy who's, you know, one of the, the very elite in the history of the sport in Cooperstown. Um, yeah, so you do have those outliers, but I do think there's kind of an attitudinal thing that, Maybe crosses over here, um, you know, and maybe tra- you know tracing it back to 2010 and the Olympics and that whole own the podium kind of attitude is maybe you know maybe that's going too far. But you know, in my lifetime, that's the moment when I thought the you know the the sea changed a bit, right? That that idea of why not us? Why can't we win? Why should we settle? You know, let's let's be a bit a little bit ruthless about it. That's to me when that kind of crept into our sports culture. And that's, you know, that, that's a through line with everybody, everything we're talking about here. 
And is it that kind of attitude you think that's going to make this level of performance sustainable, right? Because we might not have an Alfonso Davies in every generation of, of soccer players, right? And, you know, Christine Sinclair is singular in what she's been able mm-hmm. to accomplish. But because of that attitude shift, it does seem like when you're looking across sports that this level of excel- excellence should be sustainable for Canada. Well, I, yeah, I, and I, I think it, it does. Success begets success, and you know, you think like that's a, there's there was a point, you know, in Christine Sinclair's career, you know, back when she was, you know, well, she, her prime has extended a long time, but you know, at the absolute peak of her powers, where I think a lot of people, even within Canadian soccer, said, "Well, when she's gone, we're going to fall off a cliff here," because you know, there's kind of a golden, there's sink and the kind of golden generation of players around her. And, they're all aging out at the same time, and we're not totally sure about what's coming behind her. But, you know, look at that, you know, what just happened in, in, the, in the Olympics with Christine Sinclair and a bunch of players who, who, none of whom are part of that generation, really. You know, there's a couple of, couple of players on the squad, uh, you know, who, who go back there. McLeod is on the squad, you know. But, the, you know, the key players on that team are of a completely different generation. So that, you know, that happened. Um, and I, I say there were there a lot of people thought there would be well you're going to lose the greatest player of all time you're going to fall back well in fact they've kind of stayed exactly where they were they you know went in on the Olympic podium and proven their place on the Olympic podium you know they still got a ways to go in the World Cup but I think that's you know, there's the example of how that can happen organically. I love that team so much that honestly hearing you talk about it and me thinking about that team and her career it gives me goosebumps every single time. And part of what I loved about that story so much, Stephen, is that Christine Sinclair, she didn't build this program by herself, but she built a bunch of it. And it's the generation that she inspired that picked her up in the end to get her what she has so rightly deserved, that top prize, the gold medal. It's just made it so great to watch over the two decades that she's been playing for this country. Oh, well, yeah, I'm with you 100%. She is, uh, you know, I have I, never covered an athlete who I admired more than. I admire her, um, and uh, yeah, she's it, it, you know, she's obviously Twilight time wise. Uh, there's you know I, I, there's going to be a documentary about her. I see. I think there's going to be a book. You know, it's the kind of stuff that signals to me that maybe maybe she kind of, she's kind of starting to see the post playing life in front of her. Um, but boy, I know I, I'll, I'll put it this way though. I, I think there were times in earlier in her career when I'm not sure Canadians fully appreciated what we had. I think all Canadians now fully appreciate what we have. Amen to that. And it's at this point I promote the fact that her former coach and the current coach of the men's national team will be on your program, Writer's Block, today. You guys have a loaded-up guest list. Yeah, we've, uh, we've – man, this is a – it's a great time, right? Isn't it, this is a great sports time, isn't it? Because we've got oh, yeah. this going on. We've got tennis going on. We've uh, got the Blue Jays winning nine out of the last ten and pushing right back into the pennant race. Uh, the NFL starts tonight. CFL's ongoing. Uh this is if you're a sports fan. This this is this is pretty pretty great. Yeah, it's awesome. You rolled into the candy store and you've got a loaded up card and you can get whatever you want. It's fantastic, Stephen. Thank you very much for doing this. I'm glad you had a great time at the match last night. Have a great show today. Thanks, guys. That is Stephen Brunt joining us. Very generous with his time. I do think the points that were made there are excellent ones. That success begets success. And I think that crosses programs, Jamie. I think as we look around this country and see the rise with soccer and tennis and golf and basketball, there are other programs that go, 
okay, I guess we better pull our socks up a little bit here. And, and I almost feel like Canadian sports fans, that's how we're going to view it. You know, at the U.S. Open right now, part of the commentary, as we've enjoyed this run for Felix and Layla and, and Bianca bowing out just a couple of days ago, there's been the American side of things where they've been questioning, well, hold on a second here. Where are the American stars? Like, what <laughs> happened to us? Like, we had the Williams sisters, and we had Sampras and Agassi, and, and where do we go from here? Because other countries are going by us, but it's that pressure that you need to put on all of your different programs internally that eventually causes them to rise. And it does feel like a little bit like a rising tide lifts all boats, right? You know, Scotty, you and I have talked a lot about how we feel kids are pressured to specialize in sports too early, right? And, you know, okay, so somebody sees the Canadian soccer team doing what they're doing, a little kid, and they decide to get really into soccer. Well, okay, maybe they don't make it as a soccer player, but if they develop the kind of innate athleticism, they might end up thriving in another sport, right? It might be when they're 12 or 13 that they turn to tennis and decide to take up tennis instead. So I think just in general, having kids see different avenues, more avenues of athletic success, be exposed to more sports, it's going to get more people involved in any sport, which ultimately is good for every sport in the country, right? Because it's not always a straight line. What Someone might be inspired to, you know, pick up a baseball bat because of Joey Votto, but then they might end up doing something completely different uh, as a professional athlete if they get to that level. So I do think it's success begets success, not just with, oh, hey, I saw Bianca Andreescu win the U.S. Open and now I'm going to be a tennis player, but just of pushing people to excel as athletes in general. That was part of the story with our women's eights, was it not, at the Olympics this summer? And yep. They went through the boat and they went, well... She started as a soccer player, and she was high-level basketball. Eventually, they found their way to rowing, but they're great athletes, and this was a place that they could continue their careers where the pathway seemed to dry up in the sports that they had originally started on. It's a very good point that you make. Good couple hours, excellent text coming in. We will filter them into the program, but we've got to make way for our next guest. Guest, I should say. Rick Tockett, he's joined the TNT panel. We'll talk to him about how that looks for him, what TNT expects from him from a hockey standpoint. And I imagine there's a few people that want to know what advice Rick Tockett would give to Travis Green and how to handle Oliver Ekman Larson and get him back to where he was. Find out next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd.